Good morning. Good morning. My name's Matt. I'm the pastor here. And if you want more information about Celebrate Recovery, you can visit the Welcome Center right out there. And they'd be happy to get you more information about Celebrate Recovery and when it is and where it is and how you can get there. Uh, how you doing this morning? I, I got to say... Uh, I got up and was dragging this morning. It was a little dreary outside, and I wound up being later than I meant to be coming here this morning. And anyone else have that experience where you're just dragging a little bit this morning? You're like, oh, you guys, is this day number seven million in a row where it's overcast? And what is going on? Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning focusing on the light of the good news of the gospel. Hopefully that warms our souls and our hearts and our minds this morning as we do some of that in our series called Romans Road. And we are in the middle of this series called Romans Road where we're looking at the book of Romans. And what did we look at last week? We looked at the first half of chapter 5 in Romans. And what we saw there was God pile one blessing upon another on our plate if we have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 11 was a series of seven different heaping blessings that are ours if we have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, today, as we look at the second half of Romans chapter 5, what we're going to see is that not only do we get these seven blessings from those first few verses, but there's even more that is ours because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we want to look at Jesus and his grace and how great it is in our lives uh, today as we look at those passages. But in order to understand the second half of Romans 5, we need to set it in context by going back to the very first pages of the Bible. Because in the very first chapter of the Bible, we discover that women and men are made, Adam and Eve were made in the image and the likeness of God. Now, what does it mean that Adam and Eve were made in the image and the likeness of God? One of the things that it means is that they were to have the character of God perfectly represented in their lives. So that when Adam looked at Eve, she was to see the very character of God in her. And when Eve looked at Adam, she was to see the very character of God in him. So that every thought, word, and deed was the character of God within them. So God is love, for example. So every thought, word, and deed was to be one of love and never selfishness in their interactions with God and with each other. God even gave them a way where they could express love each and every day of their life. Within the garden, he told them, have at the garden, do what you will, eat of anything that you see here, but I'm going to give you this one tree. And in this one tree, you have an opportunity to show love for me every day by not eating of that tree. You have an opportunity every day to not act in selfishness and your own desires, but instead to say, no, I'm putting God first by not eating of that tree and expressing he's the priority of my life. I'm going to be a person of loving obedience instead of rebellious disobedience. And this one tree that God put in the garden and said, don't eat of it, was their opportunity to put God first. And they did. Every day until Genesis chapter 3, right? And what happened in Genesis chapter 3? 
In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve said, ah, today it's me first. Today when we approach the tree, we're going to do what we want instead of what you want, God. We're the priority today. You're not going to be the priority. And so instead of acting in love, they acted in selfishness. And what happened at that moment when they acted in sin and selfishness? Well, that's where we pick up our passage today, beginning in Romans 5, verse 12, with what happened at that moment. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What happened when Adam sinned? Not only did sin come into Adam's life, but sin entered into the whole world. And with sin came death. Death spread throughout all of humanity to every woman and every man. Now, what kind of death is it that came through sin to all humanity? It's both kinds of death. Physical death. God's intention was that Adam and Eve would live with him forever in this paradise. And when they sinned, that design came to an end. But not only that, the primary focus of this passage and of the scripture is that because of sin, there's spiritual death, which is a separation from God. Because of our sin and our selfishness, we're separated from a holy God. And from the time of Adam on, death has spread to all of humanity so that we are born with these natures that are inclined towards sin. We're born with these natures that are dead, separated from God. So when my kids were little, did I have to teach them to argue over toys? No, it came what? What's the word? It came naturally, didn't it? Did I have to teach my toddlers to fuss about food that was put in front of them that they didn't like? No, it came naturally, right? Because sin and selfishness is our nature now. We are born into that, and now because of that nature, we all sin. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice in our lives. And sometimes that sin that we live in, in our thoughts, our words, and our actions, is deeper than anyone knows. Only we know the depths of our selfishness. I was reading an, uh, a book by a pastor who talked about a day in his life where he expressed some of this selfishness, and he says, I readily recall a few selfish thoughts that I expressed in the course of a single day. I was walking down the street downtown and a person was sitting there. I wanted to walk by, but they were holding a sign asking for money. These thoughts ran through my mind. He's dirty. I wish he wasn't here. I'm not going to give him money and I'm not going to make eye contact with him so that I don't have to feel guilty. A little later, I made a purchase in a convenience store. I was in a hurry, and the line was not moving quickly enough to suit me. The man behind the counter spoke English with difficulty and was communicating slowly to the person at the head of the line. I thought, why can't they hire people who speak English? Just give me my change and let me get out of here. I wish they would fire this guy. Another time that day, I met a person who is important in church circles. I thought, here's an important person. Let me think what I might say that will impress him and how, how I can make a strategic connection with him. Heading back to my office, I walked through the church. 
but I had no keys with me, and the door of the auditorium was locked. So I walked up to the office and then back down. That's so frustrating, I whined to myself. Look at all the time I've wasted now. My time is too important to be wasted on things like this. I could have had other thoughts. I could have been grateful that I have legs and am able to walk. I could have been speaking with God about my day. Instead, I was angry and prideful about a locked door and some stairs. There's more. As I was reading scripture that night, I gained an insight about a passage that I'd never noticed before. My very next thought drifted to the staff meeting the next morning. I can tell them about the insight I've had. They will be impressed that I thought of it, particularly when they know it came from the time I devoted to being with God. It may cause them to think of me as a spiritually advanced person. The insight just happened to be about the nature of humility. <laughs> he says, and this is important, of course, none of these thoughts were articulated quite as clearly or brazenly in my own head. But this was the gist of my thinking in these situations. All of us know what he is talking about here. I know what he is talking about here. We have actions that are motivated by selfishness, and we have tongues that hurt others or are filled with gossip. Uh, we have hearts and, and eyes that are filled with covetousness for other people's things or with lust, and on and on I could go. All of us have these experiences of sin and selfishness deeply rooted in our lives. And how do I know about all of these things? Is it because I see it every day in Erica? No, that, that's not my primary contact point, right? How do I know about all of these things? Because I see it every day where, right? Because like you, I am filled with this sin and selfishness, uh, this part of me that is inclined towards disobedience. Paul says all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. Now, we might expect that as Paul moves on through this passage, he is right now going to go to a solution, right? I mean, we're sinners by nature and by choice. There's got to be a solution, or you wouldn't be writing this, right, Paul? But before he gets to that solution, which he's going to get to, he's going to deal with a bit of a side issue that may seem a little strange to us. That side issue is whether or not his claim that all of us are sinners is correct, because there are a number of people in the Roman church who are Jewish believers. And some among the Jewish believers contended that all people were not sinners throughout history. They contended that sin, the guilt of sin, was measured based on a person's breaking of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. And so they argued that before the Ten Commandments, there were all of these generations of people who didn't sin. How, how could you sin if there was no law to break, they would say. So sure, Adam sinned because he broke one of God's direct commandments. And yeah, the Israelites sinned because they broke the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai. But there were some Jews who contended everybody between those two points didn't sin because, I mean, what were they breaking? Paul's going to say, come on, guys. Of course there was sin during that period. Hey, have you read the book of Genesis? Right? Look at that, verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Right? There, there may not be the kind of guilt 
that the Jews are thinking of, of breaking the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law. But Paul says, that doesn't mean there wasn't sin. In fact, there was sin because the character of God establishes what is right and what is wrong, and people were acting against the character of God. Not only that, people were acting in selfishness, and sin is selfishness. Think of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. What does Lamech say? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech what? Seventy-seven times. He says, anybody who looks at me wrong, I kill them. Anybody who does me wrong, I kill them. What? Think of Pharaoh. Who is this God that I should listen to them? Think of Joseph and his brothers. Hey, dad likes him best. Let's kill him. Think of Judah and Tamar. Don't think of that. Like there's, there's just horrible things throughout the book of Genesis. And Paul is saying, of course that was sin. No, it wasn't legal law-breaking in the sense that the Jews understood it with the Mosaic law, but it was still sin, Paul is saying. And, next verse, he's going to tell you how you can tell it was sin. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul says, okay, Their sin wasn't against the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Nor was their sin like Adam's in that they actually ate from the forbidden fruit that God gave them. But he says, you can tell there was still sin during this time. How can you tell? Because death reigned, and it is death that flows out of sin. He said, if there'd been no sin in this period of time, then there wouldn't have been any death for these people because death is the result of sin. He says, because death reigned from Adam to Moses, you can tell there was sin during this time. Sin everywhere. Not only that, at the end, you notice that he says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Right? Who's the one who was to come? Jesus, that's right. So how is Adam a type of Jesus? I believe that Adam is a type of Jesus because both of them lived their lives and committed specific acts that affected all of humanity. Both of them represented humanity, and in the acts that they committed, they impacted or affected all of humanity through their actions. And in that way, Adam and Jesus are alike that they had an impact or an effect on all of humanity. But what he's about to say is, while Adam is a type of Jesus in that they both impacted all of humanity, the impact they had was exactly opposite. So he's He's a type of Jesus, and yet the impact they have is totally and completely different. Look at verse 15. But the free gift, that's Jesus, right? Jesus' grace is not like the trespass from Adam. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, I want you to note those words, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, note this word too, abounded for many. Adam brought death. It impacted humanity. Jesus brings life. It impacts humanity. Their acts are not alike. They're opposite. But that's not all that Paul is saying here in this passage. 
He also wants us to understand that the act of Jesus that brings grace is greater than the act of Adam that brought the trespass. That's why I had you pay attention to that word much more, that phrase much more, and the word abounded. Because God's grace through Jesus Christ is greater than the sin in our lives if we are his followers. Years ago, I was in New York City. I'm walking down a narrow one-way street in Manhattan. And as I'm walking along the sidewalk, the street there uh, is barely wide enough to fit a single vehicle. And here comes a bus down this one way. And I look down, and coming the other way, there is a cyclist riding the wrong way down the middle of this road against the one way. And I'm like, um, I, don't, I don't think that bicycle can fit around the side of the bus on this narrow little road. This will be interesting. And as they got closer and closer, nobody was slowing down. And finally, as they got close enough, the person on the bicycle hit the brakes and jumped up on the curb and brought their bike with them. The, bike, or the bus passed by and then they got back on the road and kept going. Right? Why did they do that? Because in a battle between a bus and a bicycle on a road, the bus is going to win every time. Every time that bus is going to win and it's not even going to be close. And Paul is saying the same thing is true if you're a follower of Jesus Christ between grace and condemnation in your life. That each and every time, grace defeats condemnation. Grace is the bus. And your sins and condemnation are the bicycle. And grace ultimately wins that battle each and every time in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. So there is no more shame for the things you have done, Jesus' grace has forgiven you totally and completely in all of that. I think it was about seven years ago that Matthew West wrote a song called Grace Wins Every Time. And that is a completely true lyric. For the follower of Jesus Christ, grace wins every time. Now Paul continues on with this uh, idea that Jesus' grace is greater. In verse 16, and he says, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam's act brought condemnation upon humanity, but Jesus' act brings justification. It overthrows that condemnation so that we can be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. And Jesus' act is so much greater than Adam's act. It not only overcomes that single act of sin from Adam that led to condemnation, it overcomes what? The millions of sins that you and I have committed since. It, it isn't just that one sin. It's the many trespasses that followed. And Jesus brings justification not just overcoming that single sin of Adam's, but overcoming every sin that has been committed in our lives. Justification uh, is ours because of what he's done. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Adam's act brought death to us. Jesus' act brings righteousness and life to us. And Jesus' act is far greater. That is what Paul is emphasizing here. Do you notice the words much more and abundance that appear here in in this verse as well? We might be tempted to think of Adam's sin as a minus 10. And Jesus' act through, the, through, the death and re, through his death and resurrection as a, a plus 10 that gets us back to even. But what Paul wants us to understand is in your life, if Adam's sin is a minus 10, Jesus' gracious work is a plus 10,000. It's far greater than the trespass of Adam. And his grace is greater than that condemnation in our lives. As a matter of fact, it's so great that it doesn't just get us declared innocent in the courtroom of God, but it transforms who we are. We gain a new nature with new desires, and we begin to live out this victorious life through the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. Uh, We become a people who reign in this life. We reign in righteousness, yes, in the future. Absolutely, in heaven with Christ. But we also reign in righteousness here and now. That's going to be the emphasis of chapters 6 and 7. Have you been justified and declared righteous by the work of Jesus? Yes. Then you are a person who will be sanctified and made righteous in your day-to-day life. And so we begin to reign in righteousness with Jesus Christ right now. Our hearts are changed. Our minds are changed. I was reading this week about a woman named uh, Joyce Page who was saved by Jesus and entered into new life with him. And I read, for 15 years, Joyce has spent her weekday lunch hour in the St. Louis County Correctional Institution. She began going to the correctional institution one day when she and her work supervisor were talking about ways they could make a difference for Christ. When the supervisor was transferred, Joyce kept going on her own. Every day she leaves her office with a peanut butter sandwich to eat in the car as she heads over to the facility. Every day she meets with female prisoners. Sometimes it's women in isolation that she speaks with through bars. Sometimes it's a woman's group that she meets with for Bible study. Sometimes they sing worship songs. Sometimes they pray together. Sometimes it's a Bible study. She says it depends on their needs that particular day. When she slips back into her desk at 1 o'clock, one of her coworkers is usually bemoaning how much she ate and the need to have the diet plate tomorrow. Joyce laughs. She knows exactly what she'll be eating again tomorrow in her car on the way to the prison. For many, meeting with inmates about Jesus every day in the middle of a hectic work schedule would be unthinkable. Joyce sees it differently. When asked about sacrificing her lunch hour, she says, going during lunch is an answer to prayer for me because I I don't have time to go after work because my husband and I have to pick up our six kids from school and raise them as best we can in the love of God. Joyce is living out that new righteous life. Yes, she's been declared righteous in the courtroom of God, but God's Spirit has come to dwell in her so that she now reigns in righteousness within the kingdom of God, and she is living out that righteousness by loving other people. And that happens in the lives of people in this room. Right? That's a pretty dramatic story about Joyce, maybe not in all the same dramatic ways, but I've told you before, before Christ, how toxic my tongue was, how damaging and hurtful my words were, 
I have miles to go in God's sanctification of my tongue and my words, but he has brought me so far. He has made so many changes so that there is greater and greater righteousness in this area of my life. And as I look out at this group, there are people who have experienced battles with lust, battles with coveting other people's stuff or coveting stuff. There are people who've battled uh, with gossip, battled with slandering other people. There are people who've battled with lies, who've battled with idolatry of work, who've battled with, and on and on I could go. And there are so many stories around this room that represent God's amazing grace at work in your heart, producing a new daily righteousness, a new love in you that's being expressed day in and day out. And we praise God for the work that he's doing in us. He makes us righteous. Therefore, as one trespass, okay, so he, he's gone on this little bit of an aside. Now he's going to come back and talk about this ultimate solution for the fact that we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, there are some people who read this and they get a little hung up on the phrase, life for all men. And they say, oh, Paul's teaching a universalism here. Everyone will ultimately be saved. Justification and life for all men. But we know that not to be true because we've read the rest of the verses in the book of Romans. Right? And as we've read the rest of the verses in the book of Romans, Paul's been very clear that justification is for those who place their faith in Jesus. And that those who are unwilling to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on them. Punishment for sin awaits them on the judgment. Paul's been very clear about this. And if you look at the verse immediately before this, verse 17, he is talking about the gracious gift of God and says it is only for those who receive it. Right? The benefits are only for those who receive it. Now here he is talking about those who receive it. They will be justified. Now, one thing I want to point out about this whole flow of this passage is that Paul is being very clear that Jesus is the one and only way that a person can be justified and declared righteous. Uh, he has done away with this idea of regional deities or other options. He said, there is one universal problem for humanity. And that universal problem is we're sinners by nature and by choice. And he is saying there is one great solution to that problem. And that's faith in Jesus Christ, who through his act has brought us to a place where we can be declared righteous and forgiven. Paul hasn't said, or excuse me, Paul is closing the door on any other options other than Jesus. He is the one great option to overcome this singular great problem that humanity has. There's not a Muslim option and a Hindu option and a Buddhist option. Paul's saying, no, no, no. There's one option to overcome this great problem of being sinners by nature and by choice, and it's through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, after all of this, we may still be tempted to say, but you don't know what I've done. 
That's nice that grace is there for average sinners, but I'm a disaster. Uh, my sin may be too great for the grace of God. You think that's true? Right? Verse 20, I heard somebody say, uh-uh. Somebody under the age of eight said, uh-uh, and I agree with them. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace, there's the word again, abounded all the more. That's the third time we've seen that word. Abounded is a word for overflowing. You're filling something up and it actually spills over the top. Have you ever been trying to fill somebody's water glass up with the pitcher filled with ice and the ice all bunches up right there at the top as you're pouring it and then all of a sudden, all the ice comes out at once and all the water with it. And not only is that glass full, but it spills out all over the table. Right? That, that is the idea here of abounding. It is overflowing the top. When the law was introduced, the guilt from sin increased because people now knew what they were not supposed to do. And a person who hears the law and knows what they are not supposed to do is more guilty than a person who didn't know the law in the first place. The guilt of sin increased with the law. Did it increase beyond the capacity of grace? No, as sin increased, as guilt increased, what happened with grace? It abounded all the more. It overflowed all the more. You cannot come up with an amount of sin that is greater than the grace of God that will go to work in our life when we place our faith in Him. If you think of your sin amount as a cup, maybe we have different amounts of sin in our life. And some people have a, uh, these are going to be really big cups, a 20-gallon cup. And some people have a 50-gallon cup. And sometimes I think we think of God's grace as being, oh, I don't know, maybe about 30 gallons. And if I'm a 20-gallon sinner, then yeah, absolutely, God's grace overflows in my life. But if I'm one of those 50-gallon sinners, God's grace probably doesn't get the job done. But what, what this passage is saying to us is, no, right? no matter what you've done in your background, no matter what has gone on, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and follow Him as our Lord, His grace abounds. It overflows no matter how big that cup is in our life. It overflows, right? Grace wins every time. It spills over the top and ultimately leads us to a place of eternal life so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace now reigns in our lives and it leads us to eternal life. What's eternal life? According to John 17, 3, eternal life is relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we started the passage by talking about sin leading to death, separation of relationship with God. Now we recognize that because of the grace of God, what has happened? Death has been overcome and we have eternal life, that is relationship with God and His Son. And the hope of future and perfect relationship with him unhindered by sin in the new heavens and the new earth. What a blessing. Every time we enter into taking the Lord's Supper here on a Sunday, my hope is that we spend a moment reviewing our sin. That we spend a moment thinking about that cup of our sin, the, the 20 gallons from that week, the 40 gallons from that, whatever it is, we think about our sin and our selfishness 
and that that's the starting place as we take the Lord's Supper. But then as we take the elements, we move into the truth of this passage, that God's grace is greater than all of that sin. And follower of Jesus, it abounds. It doesn't just take care of that sin, it goes beyond taking care of that sin. So that it fills you up, gives you a new nature, and that grace spills out of you all over the place. And so as we go to the Lord's Supper today, I want to invite all of us once again to think about our sin and our brokenness, our selfishness, and then think about the forgiveness, mercy, and grace of God that overwhelms and overcomes all of that in our lives. Let us give thanks to Him for that. Let us remember Him in that. You can go to the tables in the different corners of the room and pick up the bread and the cup and then bring it back to your seat. And in a moment, I'll lead us in the taking of those elements.